0: You're listening to the Ethics for Medics podcast
1: with Ezio Di Nucci and Christopher Pierre Hazel. Welcome back everybody to the Ethics for Medics podcast. There is three of us in the room again today. It's the usual medic, Christopher, the usual philosopher, Ezio, and an anthropologist all the way from the US, Olivia Spalletta, which we've invited um, to discuss issues around disabilities in healthcare, sort of ethical and philosophical issues around uh, people living with disabilities and, uh, and Olivia you specialized on looking at the experience of families with children that have down syndrome in Denmark and you've done ethnographic anthropological studies on that and do you want to tell us a little bit about that but also what's so special about families of children with Down syndrome in Denmark?
2: Yeah, I I came to Denmark because I was living in the U.S. and Denmark had a reputation for being a place that had a very high rate of prenatal screening. In 2004, the guidelines were extended to all pregnant women instead of pregnant women over 35. And an interesting thing happened, which is that there was an extremely high uptake of screening at the time and also a high rate of termination. So it was really interesting from an American perspective to ask why in a state that is not coercive would everyone take up this program and embrace it as quickly as they did and also why in a in a state that has these extremely generous welfare provisions was it the case that so few people chose to have a child with down syndrome so that was my question as an outsider it doesn't make as much sense to insiders maybe
1: (laughs) but that's fascinating so you came to denmark extra to look at precisely this question The question of the uptake in screening that resulted in more terminations and specifically for Down syndrome.
2: Yeah. So it was, I mean, it was almost a misconception because when I did preliminary field work and I spoke with people like Kristoffer, with the doctors, they told me Down syndrome does not exist in Denmark anymore. And so I thought, okay, there's an absence, a disappearing diagnosis, and that would be really interesting to study. But then when I came to Denmark, I found that there were a lot of families who were still having children with Down syndrome. So the question became, what is it like to have a child in a country where no one thinks children like this exist anymore? Especially because in Denmark, sameness, being homogeneous, being like each other is such an important value.
1: That's really interesting. I'm trying to put some order in my thoughts. So, so the idea being that because of the uptake in screening and the growing number of terminations, Medical professionals in Denmark started thinking that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. It's uh I was uh in preparing for this episode, I was thinking about what is the appropriate language for something like Down syndrome. I guess for other conditions people wouldn't have a problem saying things like, you know, a virus being eradicated. Mm-hmm. But I guess one of the reasons why we're doing this episode on Down syndrome is that, you know, it's much more interesting and complex than saying it's been eradicated or we want to eradicate it through screening right so that, that, that language is probably inappropriate for something like down syndrome but but then what you're saying is that it didn't really disappear even though the numbers shrunk significantly and that the fact that there were only few left few families left living with kids with down syndrome affected their experience of the condition but also basically their their place in society is that is that a way yeah. of seeing it
2: yeah I think I think this also unfolds at many different levels because there was a reduction in the number of births So before 2004 there were around 60 births per year um, where there was an infant diagnosed with Down syndrome. The number when I was doing field work in 2015 16 17 was around 30 and now the number is around 20 So there has been there there's been a reduction there's been a change in how generally, uh people in healthcare talk about down syndrome so when a child with down syndrome is born now very often or about half the time it's a surprise and so the healthcare workers in that situation are often very surprised and that, that affects the parents also the parents are usually very surprised if they participated in screening which most do they took the screening as a diagnostic tool and assume many times that it means that down syndrome has been uh, eliminated as a possibility for their pregnancy
1: can we, can, can we stop for a second to sort of reflect on the concept of surprise? Because I guess what's interesting, again, going back to what we were saying before about the eradicated would be an inappropriate terminology, is that also your surprise can be very different. So I guess what you're saying is that the healthcare professionals are surprised because they assume that it would have been caught by the screening and the parents would have decided to have a termination, that's why the healthcare professionals are surprised.
2: Yeah, I, I think there are a few different responses. Uh, they they can be surprised, especially if the parents participated in in screening, because even healthcare professionals don't know that the sensitivity of the test isn't or the screen isn't one hundred percent. It's eighty five percent, or it was eighty five percent when I was doing field work. So that means that um, it's not uh, the screening isn't designed to always detect. A case of Down syndrome, they the people who sort of decided on the on the guideline. Maybe Christopher can fact check me a little bit. <laughs> no. um, uh, but when the decision was being made based on the interviews I did, the understanding was, if you make the test too sensitive, then you do too many diagnostic tests, which can lead to too many um, miscarriages. If it's uh, CVS or amniocentesis, now I think they do. Nipt, which is a blood test, which is pretty accurate, but that's not uh, available for everything that you can screen for.
1: Can we take sorry? Can we take this a bit slowly because yeah. the philosopher is struggling here. Yeah. So, so what you're saying is that the sensitivity of some of the tests also correlated with how invasive the tests were and how likely they were to cause. Something like a miscarriage. Is, is that the point?
2: The screen itself doesn't. But if you get a number, you get a risk score when you go in for screening. And that's based on a blood test and then also a, a measurement that they take on the fetus. So if you get a, a risk, which is just what they call it, of... Less than one in three hundred, so a chance that is greater than one in three hundred that you have that the fetus has Down syndrome, then you are offered a diagnostic test, and there are different diagnostic tests. But one that they do is amniocentesis, which punctures the the amniotic sac, and there is a very low chance that that will cause a miscarriage. Okay, I get it now. Um, so, so it is in the
1: second phase that there is yeah. a, an in, a small increase in the risk of a miscarriage, Yes. and the second phase only kicks in if you've already had a positive result yeah. in the scre- in the first phase screening.
2: Yeah. So the question is, I mean, and in, based on my interviews, the question that the doctor said was taken up in the room is, how many times do we want to risk the life of a, of a fetus that is not affected by Down syndrome in order to catch a fetus with Down syndrome?
1: And that's a really interesting ethical dilemma. I guess in order to analyze that kind of dilemma, we would need to know a little bit more about the sort of the percentages i guess so for example you know how this second phase testing you know what is the likelihood of it causing miscarriages right but i think it's it's a it's a really interesting case actually we were uh, or no at least it was just uh just me last week there was a there was a debate about how to in the healthcare system how to value death versus lesser burdens and um and i guess that's really difficult so i mean so that you might have you know you might have the possibility to use the same resources to save a certain number of lives or to you know cure a much higher number of a certain condition and uh, and whether those two things are comparable whether sort of saving lives is comparable to you know curing a certain condition just multiplied for you know a much bigger uh, number and it, it seems to me that here we've got Sort of the sort of the risk of losing a healthy child Mm -hmm. as opposed to the chance of catching uh, a Down syndrome um, child is as a similar kind of structure um but but i'm i'm still a little bit confused i mean maybe because you know you're being thanks so much olivia you are being so precise that 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 i'm like i'm struggling with the details here because one of the the things and, and maybe please both of you tell me if those details are irrelevant but but one of the details that seems to be relevant to me is you said so denmark went before the kind of universal screening with went from 60 cases a year to 30 and now it's gone down to 20 Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's radical. I mean, small numbers, uh, but it's a radical change. Right. Mm-hmm. We're talking about you know uh, only a third of what it was twenty years ago. But that doesn't quite correlate to what you were saying in terms of that the accuracy of the test is eighty five percent, because on the assumption that everybody that gets an accurate test decides for a termination, it should have diminished for you know with more than two thirds. The, the, do you see what i'm trying to say i'm trying to compare mm-hmm. those two numbers yeah. and saying so there must be something else going on there there must be people not screening or deciding to keep uh, a a positive result uh fetus well, or something like that
2: what's really interesting is that in during my research i couldn't find anyone who had actually investigated well there uh, there's one paper that investigates where where how this breaks down And that was a physician who was surprised by the fact that there were still births occurring in Denmark, which is interesting in and of itself. And so she did a study to break down how does this happen, where do these numbers come from. And about half the time, it's because there's a false negative on the screen. About half the time, a pregnant person goes in to be screened, gets what is called generally in the room a good number, meaning outside of the 1 in 300 risk. And that person exits the room thinking, great, great. There's no possibility that my my fetus has any kind of disability. That accounts for about half. Sometimes people get a screening and they get a number that is 1 in 200, and then they get an offer for testing, and they have to decide what is a 1 in 200 chance versus that my child has Down syndrome versus a 1 in 100 chance maybe that I could have um, a miscarriage as a result of the test. They have to go home or talk with a genetic counselor and, and weigh that risk. That accounts for some. And then there are people who... Choose not to screen, that's a very, very, very small number. But there are a lot of healthcare professionals who assume that anytime they meet a family who has a child with Down syndrome, it's because that family chose not to screen. And that's not a choice that is, in my experience, highly respected uh, in the Danish context. Um, usually, there's a perception that people have a duty to participate in screening in wow, order to protect that's, that's, the
1: Wow, that's very interesting. Can you can we can we stop there? So so I think I, I'm getting now the complexity of you know there are at least three pathways to uh, having a child with Down syndrome in Denmark today, right? So I think that part I'm getting. Uh, but now you're saying that basically one of these pathways, so the kind of universal screening and, and 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 the fact that some have a child with Down syndrome because they didn't participate at all in the screen program, not even the first phase, there is pressure from the healthcare system. To participate in those screenings, it's perceived as a duty. I mean, that's normatively speaking, that's a very strong claim. I would just, just
0: before we go to that part, just finish the other uh, question you had before regarding the sensitivity on 85 and how come there will still be false uh, negative tests and so on. Because I think it's also very interesting for the listeners to remember or pay attention to that, I mean, these data are not accurate. Right? just because you get the number one out of 300 it sounds in itself as it's very specific very accurate but you know that numbers can still be wrong right and the same with the whole science behind the 85 percent sensitivity nobody knows necessarily if that is a correct number it could be much less this is all based on often and i'm just talking in general terms right um It's often based on a few studies that you start extrapolating to whole populations in other contexts and so on, right? So there's always a huge variation with all these different numbers, but often, including clinicians, get surprised when the data turns out to be wrong because they appear so precise. Just like a blood sugar on 9.2, you immediately think that it must be at least 9.1 to 3. But it could still be completely wrong if it's you have taken the test in the wrong way, right? Thanks so, so much. Take for it, yeah. Take it. Uh, <laughs> be careful with these numbers and uh, uh, sh- these facts.
1: And I was thinking, oh, thanks so much, Christopher, for reminding us of the uncertainty and 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 sort of how. You know that all of those are approximations and i think actually this is a good place to make that point because the numbers are so small right so a country like denmark only has what used to have 60 now has 30 or 20 right mm-hmm. obviously for example those statistics of 85 percent sensitivity that definitely isn't coming from denmark right because they wouldn't have the numbers to even run the studies so those are definitely studies coming from a different healthcare system a different context and uh, so i think you know I think it's always important to remind us of the uncertainty and how all of these are approximations. And in this specific case, we actually have the raw numbers to show that you know it's very, very difficult to run any kind of statistics on this insignificant kind of numbers, which is the way for the foreigner to remind everybody how tiny Denmark is. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but I think, so, so this is, and this is also quite nice methodologically for a kind of ethics and philosophy podcast also to kind of keep those two questions related but separate. So the kind of epistemological question about uncertainty and about approximation from this normative question, The Olivia was bringing up that even though the screenings are uncertain, even though there is a lot of false positives and false negatives, even though there is a lot of approximations in the numbers, apparently, Olivia was saying there is pressure, you know, social pressure, ethical pressure, political pressure, even legal pressure. I mean, we'll have to talk about what kind of pressure, but that's what you were saying, Olivia, right? That there is pressure on those families to participate, on all families to participate in the screening programs. Even you even wor- use the word duty.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's really delicate because the point, the political point of programs like this, is not to put pressure on on families. The political purpose is to give people access to information, is to allow people to live in a way that is aligned with their desires and their values and their wishes. So there's this big sort of liberal wish that is lived out through the healthcare system in in this case. And yet what we can observe is that people experience something very different. So the experience that people have who are going through this system can, can vary really widely from what the political goal seems to be in this case. So in my research where I interviewed families who went through screening and ended up with a child who has Down syndrome, a lot of them did describe pressure in the system, but not just Overt pressure, people in the screening room saying, Are you sure you don't want to know the number, for instance, which happened to one family? But also, there is this sense in which you're offered a screening in a welfare state that is under pressure. You're not offered things unless they're important
1: mm-hmm. to do.
2: And also, um, Down syndrome and disability generally is not highly visible in Denmark. And there is also a very complex system of reciprocity in Denmark, um, where in exchange for being the recipient of all this generous care that the state gives you, you are expected to produce economically. And that's not just a, a demand of the system, that's also an interpersonal relational demand that people sort of have an idea about how much other people are reciprocating, are producing. So to have a child who has a disability is is different in Denmark than it is in other places where your personhood is not so tied to your ability to be not just a reproductive but a productive citizen
1: this is such an interesting point and i mean full disclosure here the reason why we desperately wanted olivia on this episode is that both christopher and i read one of the papers that came out of of this research that you're talking about, Olivia. And that paper made very powerfully this point that I think I haven't seen anywhere else. Um, So maybe you're the first one or maybe I haven't read enough, but this point about distinguishing between sort of generous universal healthcare kind of welfare states, like we know them in Europe, that might be funded on reciprocity as opposed to solidarity. So basically I, i'm I'm, like, I'm i i haven't thought about it uh, enough but but my my thinking is that what 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 you're doing in, in that paper is that a lot of people underestimate in comparing i don't know sort of universal healthcare coverage european style universal healthcare coverage with i don't know insurance style uh, systems like in the us something goes unnoticed namely that under systems with universal coverage there are at least two different ways of doing that and then you're pointing out the scandinavian systems or at least the danish one is a system that is based on reciprocity rather than for example on solidarity so this is not a point about how much resources a system has it's a point about what is the in the end at the end of the day the moral justification for universal healthcare coverage and you're saying that in the danish healthcare system the moral justification is one based on reciprocity Rather than solidarity, and basically, and this is me. I will remember your paper. You should, you should, you should correct me if I'm if I'm wrong there. But that basically, your evidence from families living with kids with Down syndrome points to the system being built on reciprocity rather than solidarity, uh, and those kind of pressures are a result of that view. Uh, and I and I'm and I'm thinking now that I didn't remember from the paper, but now that you're speaking about it, I'm thinking that you've just identified two different sources or two different places where that pressure plays out, right? So first of all, just the pressure to participate in the screening, right? So you're not acting in a reciprocal kind of way if you're refusing to participate in the screening, if you're basically intentionally taking a certain risk. Then you're somehow already free-riding. That seems to be the perception that you're talking about. And then if you participate in the screening but don't want to know the result, you're again taking a risk on behalf of the whole of society. And therefore not playing the reciprocity game properly and uh, and then i guess much more concretely the kind of lack of care and lack of services that those families might be subject to that i remember from your from your paper would again be another example of this reciprocity view of the healthcare system uh, basically i mean it, for the listeners i mean this is just a basic uh, philosophical distinction that i'm just going to make i mean for the listeners the idea of thinking of a reciprocity kind of justification as opposed to a solidarity kind of justification is that the fact that a person that is getting a lot of healthcare services will not be able to contribute to the system, to pay taxes, to basically pay back for all of those services. In a solidarity-based system, that should play no role, right? No role in the distribution of resources, but also no role in the kind of consideration that that person gets. But in a recipro- reciprocity-based system that obviously plays a role that's my understanding again i'm basically just retelling the the distinctions as i remember it from olivia's paper that in a reciprocity-based system that shows right the fact that that person will never be able to contribute to pay back that shows if not in the distributive choices maybe they will get the services because there are legal entitlements but it shows in the way in which the service providers treat them or treat their families am am i have i gone too far in sort of generalizing this or is this basically the the sort of the kind of philosophical point that that paper was making olivia
2: yeah it's very interesting to hear your take on it and i think that's a very good summary of of the argument that i was trying to make i'm grateful that i've brought a pen to write down some of the things that you have (laughs) said so that i can respond i think You know, one of the first things you you talked about was the the pressure that people feel to participate, and I, I, I don't think that that's necessarily so close to the experience that people have, and I think that people, in essence, if they are living their lives according to the course sort of set out by the welfare state, they don't actually experience pressure because the welfare state is generally very, very aligned to what people in Denmark, if they are working and they are going through education, the people that I speak to generally don't actually feel like they experience pressure, which is part of why it's so difficult for them usually to to listen to people who do feel pressure, who find themselves outside of the embrace of welfare state services. In, in theorizations of the welfare state, very often anthropologists start with universalism. Universalism, universal access builds solidarity, and that solidarity builds in reciprocity. So like a, a triangle at the bottom, you have universal access, then you have um, a solidarity building in the society, and then you are in a position to reciprocate. What I argue is that in fact, and other people have argued this too, that in fact there is now, that is inverted, that now that there there is a demand for reciprocity first to demonstrate that you are able to reciprocate and willing to reciprocate, this is true of foreigners, and then this also affects people with disability. If you cannot start out life ch- demonstrating an ability to economically reciprocate, you have sort of lost your place in the moral system of the, of the welfare state. So, so as long as people are sort of living out their lives on this path, in what I call a virtuous cycle of welfare, transforming services into more welfare for other people, I don't think they experience pressure to do one thing or the other. It is as soon as you step out of this system, become disabled, have a child with a disability, or become unemployed, that you start to experience these rougher sides of the welfare state.
1: is so interesting and and i've got so much to say i have to sort of pace myself um i'd like to scale it up to some kind of basic political philosophical distinctions that might be helpful to the listeners and especially to the to the medical students but i want to be mindful of the fact that we shouldn't go too far away from you know down syndrome and Uh, and the disability topic of today. But, but, But one basic way in which, when people think about health justice and health equity in political philosophy, people distinguish between an egalitarian and a prioritarian approach. And if you apply the difference between egalitarianism and prioritarianism to, for example, disability, the standard distinction there would be that prioritarianism allows you to make exceptions for people that are particularly disadvantaged, for example um, while egalitarianism wouldn't necessarily allow you um, to do that and, um, and, and, and and this has also a kind of controversial history this kind of, sort of, this kind of general theories when they're applied to disability because if you add a third theory there namely the one that the listeners will be most familiar with namely utilitarianism obviously utilitarianism is not very good at dealing with and this goes back that's why i'm bringing it up not just because it's something that sort of matches really well with previous episodes and especially in the first season but utilitarianism isn't very good at dealing with people living with disabilities for exactly the reasons that we've been discussing about reciprocity namely investing a lot of resources in people that might not be able to pay back like people living with you know serious disabilities and here we're not necessarily thinking down syndrome we're thinking of you know uh, serious genetic conditions but there I is no utilitarian please
2: sorry make the point that um in denmark nobody actually knows how much they reciprocate <laughs> i mean no we don't get a balance sheet at the end of the month that says you cost you went to the gp this many times you take this medication you have this many children in kindergarten and so therefore, and you only pay this much in tax. There's no one who's 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 doing that on an individual basis. So we're dealing with a fiscal imaginary, essentially. We don't know how much people with Down syndrome cost, just like we don't know how much you cost or I cost. Um, and yet that number somehow becomes so important, even though it is totally imaginary. So
1: the number is is unknown but it's being used even though we don't know it. That's, that's yeah, really and, and interesting. And it's
2: also, I mean, in essence, incalculable, right? I mean, how do you decide how much an individual person costs and how much they give back? But don't and what health economists
1: means. do those kind of calculations I all the time? I don't know
2: any health economists. I'm desperate to meet a health economist. Can a health economist uh, please Okay, well, in? <laughs> we'll
1: invite an health economist to, yeah. to, to the next, uh, to the next uh, episode of the show. But, but can, I, can I, sorry, can I just finish the, the point about sort of egalitarianism Prioritarianism and utilitarianism. But, but thanks, Maria, for interrupting me because that was the reason why I was being hesitant about bringing up these kind of general theories because they don't necessarily sort of give back the, the, sort of the specificity of a certain experience or a certain condition. But the general idea being that utilitarianism doesn't have the resources as a theory to deal with people that won't be able to pay their dues. And that's an argument, that's a normative argument against utilitarianism as a view of healthcare resources distribution that, that that was the point i was trying to make basically that you know we've been talking on this show about utilitarianism as opposed to other approaches to ethics but also to healthcare and in, it's quite easy when we talk about disability to show one of the big problems with utilitarianism namely that it runs completely against our basic intuition that the more vulnerable you are you know the more does that call for care for moral consideration right and we don't have to politicize this and talk about what's going on in the middle east just now even though obviously those but those are exactly the kind of intuitions that people have that how vulnerable you are is relevant to the kind of moral consideration that you deserve and utilitarianism is just not very good at that and historically uh, people living with disabilities have been the classic case has been used against utilitarianism and that's and now uh, again doing kind of philosophy and doing sort of kind of more pedagogical things but that's the way you can move away from utilitarianism and make a very easy case for prioritarianism namely that we're allowed to prioritize the vulnerable or for egalitarianism namely that the fact that someone is not going to be able in the future to pay back should play no role In the distributive decisions and they should be entitled to as much right so in that respect again we're back at the basic distinction that you make in that paper olivia between reciprocity and solidarity and now the philosopher has done a lot of talking so he will try to shut up for the rest of today
2: but i think i think this is a very interesting breakdown in 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 order for it to break down in the way you have described you must first buy into the idea that your ability to economically reciprocate has something to do with your value as a person and society and, and then, yes, I, I agree with this breakdown, but if you take a different view of what makes anyone a full person, um, and that doesn't have to do with reciprocal capacity in a market, then you could have a very different view of, of, of how to apply these concepts. Um, if you put at the center of life relationships and community, for instance, then you might still be able to have a utilitarian perspective but it's not tied to economic reciprocation, if that makes sense.
0: have you had any thoughts about biopower in relation to to the investigation you have done? because what I see when what I yeah kind of read through your your text about exactly that the the parents are not legally speaking forced to do anything they on the contrary they are explicitly told that you know they can do whatever they want to but the parents still feel the the kind of pressure the untold pressure of how to behave especially regarding the whole screening element and for me at least that is very interesting in the concept of biopower by Michel foucault right Mm -hmm. so in this case it means that it's a extremely complex uh, concept that people have to look up to in more details. But basically it just means that society as an overall institution is trying to subconsciously or explicitly try to uh, make the citizens to do those things that is in favor for society. So it's about biopower in terms of power regarding how to live. So, for example, Subconsciously, implicitly, we're all being told that it's bad to smoke. And here it's really bad in the uh, terms of a normative way, that it's morally wrong to smoke, or it's something you shouldn't be at least proud of. And this is is an example of biopower, right? That how in society we are through disciplinary uh, methods, making an overall uh, idea of what is right to do and wrong to do. And that's also what i see in your paper regarding the whole pressure of getting the most healthiest children being the getting the disabled children that is capable of doing most for society is also this whole assumption that is in society of actually providing as much as possible be as healthy as possible because from an ethical point of view you could as well argue for the opposite saying that's not, it's not bad per se to be a smoker, or it's not bad per se to have a disabled child that cannot take care of themselves. But that's something that is an assumption we have in society, or is, is something that it's at least difficult for a lot of people to get rid of this idea. And I see that's why they also try to, for themselves and others, uh, argue for why they are still providing value to society. Any thoughts about that?
2: I'm really glad that I have a phone a friend. If I need an explanation <laughs> of biopower in the future, I think that's um, really well put. Um, the, in uh, theorizations of biopower, we also often make distinctions between how things were in the before time, which is when states ruled through overt violence and could, uh, where you know, sovereigns had the power to kill people they didn't like. And so the shift that Foucault and others is pointing to, I think is about a shift away from overt violence, overt violent rule to maybe a softer kind of violent rule. And, but even that I think is, would be a bit controversial to say, to align the wishes of the state with the wishes of the citizen by defining what health is in, in sort of a collaborative way, but also through institutions. So in this case, if you trace, for instance, what kind of births are allowed in a particular place it used to be possible to kill the people who you didn't want reproducing then you know in denmark in the 30s 40s 50s even up to the 70s there were other controls on on reproduction that were sterilization also kind of a violence and imposition by the state onto the body and now there's another shift another biopolitical shift in which we in which the state now has instructed for many years people about what kind of birth is favorable. And what is not, and now they a, a kind of trust is being extended to the population to determine themselves. Is it fundamentally different? Yes, but it, but it's also a continuation of that still of that interest in the the citizenship, the citizenry, and who we allow into this state.
1: I think pointing out that continuum is uh, is really interesting. And it's something that has come up in in other episodes. The way you know persistence and find new ways of continuing to do under different formal or superficial principles what they've been doing and wanting to do all the time and i think i mean I, i've learned a lot from this uh, discussion biopower i must confess that's not a literature that i'm familiar with but it did remind me what of what so i think you are onto something christopher because it did definitely remind me of what olivia was talking about before this almost like there is a kind of assumption or a, or a Duty that there is a duty to be healthy so that society puts us under a sort of pressure to be healthy not and they pretend to do it on our behalf but they're doing it on their own behalf so for the survival of society so for this reciprocal kind of reason and
0: exactly as Olivia said nobody has to tell what they should do they just do it by themselves you don't tell the, the parents or the pregnant woman that she's not allowed to smoke and not allowed to go and drink a lot simply she won't do it because it has already been mm-hmm. told to her through,
1: throughout. So maybe that's what's going to bring the change, right? We should be less compliant as, uh, as citizens, <laughs> as patients. Thanks for listening, everybody. It's been, uh, it's been really interesting to have you on the show, Olivia. Maybe you'll agree to come back. Ciao. <laughs>
2: Thank you.